Welcome to Sunday School for Heathens. The show where we learn about Christianity and how weird it sounds to everyone else. I'm Shannon. And I'm Brian. I'm not a priest and I do not have a degree in theology. I'm just the kind of guy who got asked by a priest yesterday, Wait, you're still here? What? <laughs> Were you just loitering at church? Um, no, I, I set up, we have three masses at my church. I set up for all three of them. I go to the first and the last one. So he was surprised. This is like a visiting priest. Oh, he didn't realize that you double mass on Sundays? Yeah. He was surprised that I was still there all those hours later. <laughs> That's real. What do you do during the second one? Do you go home? No, I go to a coffee shop and read. Okay. That's sweet. Yeah. I mean, I'm a yoga teacher and we have lots of people who will do like two classes back to back. That's only an hour and I don't know how long mass is, but I feel like it's sort of similar. It's like an hour, yeah. Okay. So yeah, I, I get there at like 7.15 to set up, go to the 8 o'clock mass, and then leave for 9, and then I'm gone until like 11, and then set up for the 11 o'clock mass, go to that one, and then I'm home by 1. And that's my Sunday morning every Sunday. Wow, your Sunday is long. <laughs> <laughs> and now you all know. It's the time of year where you're about to spend a lot of time in church, Brian. It is. I am doing lots of things at my church during it's... Lent and then in Holy Week and all of that. It's a seasonally appropriate time for this podcast. Yeah. And uh, what are we talking about this week? Well, funny we should mention Lent because we're talking about Lent, specifically Lenten fasting. Oh boy. So is fasting just anytime you give something up or is there a specific, are we talking specifically about the like food consumption part of Lent? We're mostly going to talk about the food part of it, though at the end we'll get into a little bit, it means different things now to different people. Cool. I'm into it. So it's been a little bit since we've done this, because the last two were Spot the Differences episodes, but we're going to start with a Bible story. Oh, good. There's several places in the Bible that mention 40 days as an important number. Okay. For example, when we talked about the Ten Commandments, Moses was hanging out on Mount Sinai for 40 days right. with God. Elijah also fasted for 40 days. 40 in general is a symbolic number that is like a symbolic of a trial or a test. Ah, so when you're being challenged, it usually comes in a 40 increment. Yeah, pretty much. Or like 40 also means a generation. Okay. It's, it's a big deal. It's 40 is big. Special, special number. Yeah. So the story that gets most connected with Lent is when Jesus fasted for 40 days. Great. This story is in the Gospel of Matthew. comes right after the Christmas story with the three kings. Okay. So we're right on top of it. Yeah. So it's right after that. And then Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist. Great. And it's a whole big thing. Mm -hmm. God calls down from the heavens, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. All right. He declares dove. paternity, the whole shebang. It's a big, big deal. And then Jesus is led into the desert by the Holy Spirit. Is He's an infant? No, he's an adult. Okay. We Jesus, fast forwarded in time. Well, there's one story of Jesus as like a kid. Okay. He like gets left behind on a family trip. Awkward. <laughs> So he's born, and then the next time we see him, he is an adult, Yeah, and he's in the desert, pretty much. Yeah, he, he gets baptized as an adult, then goes to the desert. Great. What's he doing in the desert? He is fasting for 40 days. Great. And 40 nights, because he is out there to be tempted by the devil. Ooh, I assume that means the devil's going to come to him sometime in this desert? The devil does come to him in this desert at the end of this 40 days. 
devil comes to him and says, Hey, you're the son of God. Make those stones into bread. And Jesus says, Hey, no, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Which is, you know, quoting scripture. Sure. Good job, Jesus. Good for him. He knows the book. The devil shakes his head at that, snaps his fingers. Okay, fine. Suddenly, they're in Jerusalem, on top of the temple. Wait, the devil has the ability to time travel or, like, teleport? That or they walked and it got left out of this story. Okay. I like the teleporting idea better. I do, too. It paces the story better. Yes. (laughs) Otherwise, like, what did they talk about the whole walk to Jerusalem? I have no idea. Maybe they're just quoting scripture back and forth at each other. Probably. So they're in Jerusalem and they're on top of a hill? They're on top of the temple. Oh, like on the roof? Yes. Great. (laughs) And the temple is on top of a hill, so they're pretty high up. Yes, they can see a lot. Yes. And... Like I said, the the devil and Jesus quoting scripture back and forth at each other. Great. <laughs> devil says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down off of this temple. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus, you know, goes he- right back with some scripture. Yep. <laughs> it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Ah, Trixie. You can yeah. use that line to justify a lot of things or to get out of doing a lot of things. And Jesus did. And the devil sighed and snapped his fingers again. And now they're on top of a mountain. Okay. Different mountain than any of the other mountains we've seen so far? Unspecified mountain. Very tall. Okay. So tall you can see all the kingdoms in the world from this mountain. Very tall. Very tall mountain. Great. And the devil says, all of this I will give to you if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus pauses, thinks about it. Mind clouded with hunger after 40 days not eating. Yeah. Snaps out of it and says, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then, because we're doing the rule of threes that happens in these stories, this is where the devil gives up. Okay. (laughs) Now, did Jesus know it was the devil for all three of those trials? Or does he have an epiphany that this is the devil and not God speaking to him when they're on top of this mountain? I think he's aware. Okay. He just finally gets fed up with it at the top of this mountain because the rule of three makes good storytelling. Yes, essentially. (laughs) Cool. As long as we're clear. And so the devil leaves and some angels show up and they take care of Jesus, patch him up. Yep. Probably make him dinner. Hopefully. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, he's got to have been very hungry at this point. Yeah. After that is where Jesus goes out and he starts preaching. Now he's the Jesus that we know of as the Jesus. Yeah. Doing his public ministry. Cool. So this... Story does not happen right before he gets crucified. It happens right at the beginning. Yeah. It's a preparation for his ministry. So it makes sense as a preparation thing. It's the like training montage before you go fight the bad guy. Yeah. And so we're all just collectively in Lent doing a training montage before Easter. Cool. It's like Batman in the Batcave learning how to be Batman. <laughs> Only it's Jesus in the desert learning how to be Jesus. Yeah. But it's... Probably not a very good movie, because I think he's just wandering in the desert, not eating. Yeah. I mean, I didn't say it had to be a good montage. <laughs> not Kung Fu Jesus. That's a that's different. That's a comic book that I own. Of course you do. <laughs> so, out of the Bible, to historical development. Right from the very beginning, Christians were celebrating the death and resurrection of Jesus, Easter. Yeah. And almost immediately, different communities began looking for... Their own training montages before Easter. How to prepare for Easter. Easter's a big one. Yeah. Easter's the big one. Right. It's it's the big holiday. Mm -hmm. This is how we get Lent. People are looking for ways to prepare. 
The earliest mention of Lent comes in a letter from Iranius to Pope Victor I in the late 2nd century. The 2nd century had a lot going on in it. Yeah, I mean, it, it gave them enough time to start to gather these loose communities into more standardized things. Not all the way standardized yet. That comes yeah. later. Well, So what does this letter say? The letter talks about the differences in celebration of Easter and Lent in different communities. Okay. So he says, The dispute is not only about the day, but also about the actual character of the fast. Some think that they ought to fast for one day, some two, others for still more. Some make their day last 40 hours on end. Such variation in their observance did not originate in our own day, but very much earlier, in the time of our forefathers. Forefathers in this context meaning the Twelve Apostles, okay. specifically. So not just, like, the generation before them, but rather the founding forefathers, so to speak. Right. Though, I mean, it would have been... Also... A couple generations, not really even that far from. Yeah. They could also have been the generation before, sort of... Yeah, if some of them had lived long, yeah. But they were a more specific and important group of guys. Right. They're saying this is grounded in the tradition of Jesus's original followers. That's why we do this. Great. And that's important. Yeah. But when Rufinius translated this letter from Greek to Latin in the 4th century, he did some weird punctuation thing that made it look like instead of 40 hours one day, Mm -hmm. he made it look like 40 days, 24 hours a day. And that's when Lent went from, like, one big long thing to a really, really long multi-day thing? It kind of built up gradually over time, but this confused people for a long time. Okay. Where people thought, oh, Lent has always been 40 days because of this letter. But it's not likely that it has always been this standard length. Okay. Likely it just started with a few days and people just kept adding to it. Yeah. Until they hit 40 and then they realized they shouldn't go any further because 40 is the important number. For some reason or another, people started settling on 40. And we get to the 4th century, and this is when we're starting to standardize practices in Christianity. Okay. At the Council of Nicaea in 325, there is a piece written from the notes of that meeting that it was decided that a provincial synod would be held every year before the 40 days of Lent. Great. So that is very official then. So they're they're very specifically calling out there are 40 days of Lent. Around the same time... St. Athanasius mentions to his followers that the 40-day fast should come before the more intense fasting that will take place during Holy Week. So So this adds a week to it? Yes. So now it's 40 days and then an extra week and then Easter? Pretty much, yeah. That's not 40 days. That's 47 days. Oh, we'll get into even more. It's None of this is actually 40 days. Great. It's not 40 days like you're thinking. It's 40 days. Apparently. And then in the beginning of the 5th century, Pope Leo, he preached that the faithful must fulfill with their past the apostolic institution of the 40 days. So this is another guy who, aside from a punctuation error, is insisting that this is from the apostles. We need to do that because it's from them, these 40 days. We don't have any record that they were doing this for 40 days at a time, but maybe some people thought they were. (laughs) They might have been. We don't have any proof they weren't either. At this point, 4th, 5th century, we're all agreeing 40 days in some manner or another, but we don't agree on what 40 days means. Or what? 40 (laughs) days is 40 days. In Jerusalem, some people were fasting Monday through Friday, then eating on the weekends. So to get to a total of 40 days of fasting, Lent is eight weeks. Okay. In Rome, people fasted Monday through Saturday, and then 
they would eat on Sundays. So their Lent was six weeks plus a partial seventh week. Okay. So this six out of seven day fast took hold in the Western church. And that is actually what gets used today. All right. Lent is six and a half weeks, not 40 straight days in the Western church. Okay. Because, so Sundays don't count? Sundays don't technically count. Because they're just, the because you have the things you do on Sundays that you normally do on Sundays? Because you're celebrating. You're going to mass and it's a party and you shouldn't be fasting, and fasting? during a party. Yeah. Okay. But you said that's specifically in the Western church. Yeah. Yeah. In the Western church, it's Ash Wednesday, runs 40 days, excluding Sundays until Easter. And then the Eastern church does things a little differently. Okay. They do include Sundays in the count. Interesting. They start on Monday and run 40 straight days until the Friday before Palm Sunday. So they would have started the Monday before Ash Wednesday. Or they start the Monday after Ash Wednesday. It doesn't... There's even more reasons it doesn't line up. Okay. They start on a Monday. (laughs) Yeah. And they end on the Sunday before... Palm Sunday, which is the Sunday before Easter. Okay, so they have Monday, 40 days... Seven days, and then Palm Sunday, and then Easter. No. They start on a Monday. Okay. End on the Friday before Palm Sunday. Great. And then Palm Palm Sunday Sunday. to Easter is the week. Great. So this matches what St. Athanasius was talking about. All right. Where you do your fast for 40 days, and then you do a bigger fast for one week, and then Easter. Except for that Saturday in between, which presumably you, I don't know, get hammered. I, yeah, I don't know what people do on that Saturday. <laughs> I hope they do something awesome. <laughs> I would. That's where the big party comes in. Sure. <laughs> we more or less have 40 days figured out in our own manners. <laughs> there are two kinds of 40 days, but they both end up being 40-ish days. Yeah. There's a way to make it 40. Great. So we have to figure out what exactly does fasting mean. Most people, as we get later on in time, are not going full Jesus and eating nothing for this whole time. I would hope so. Some areas of the church said that fasting was abstaining from all meat and all animal products. All right. Others make an exception for fish. Yes. Why is there an exception for fish? Possibly because fish was in a separate category than other meat in Jewish law. Also, meat was seen as more of a luxury than fish. And Lent was supposed to be a time of austerity. Or, you know, you can ask the 13th century theologian, St. Augustine. Oh, great. Tell me what St. Augustine thinks about fish. He has so many feelings about meat from land animals. So I'm just pulling some direct quotes. Please do. I can't (laughs) wait. Fasting was instituted by the church in order to bridle the concupiscences of the flesh. Oh my goodness. Which regard pleasures of touch in connection with food and sex. Wherefore, the church forbade those who fast to partake of those foods which both afford most pleasure to the palate, and besides are a very great incentive to lust. Such are the flesh of animals which take their rest on the earth, and of those that breathe air and their products. Okay, so what he's saying is we shouldn't eat land animals when we're fasting because... Eating land animals makes us happy, and if we're happy, we might think about sex. Pretty much, and they taste good, which... Makes us happy, which makes us think about sex. Yes. Okay, what's the next one? It's more about eating land animals makes us think about sex. It just is more explicit in this next quote. Great. I want to hear it anyway. (laughs) 
For since such like animals are more like man in body, they afford greater pleasure as food and greater nourishment to the human body, so that their consumption there results a greater surplus available for seminal matter, which when abundant becomes a great incentive to lust. Hence the church has bidden those that fast to abstain especially from these foods. Great. (laughs) Augustine. Augustine. (laughs) So don't eat meat because it tastes good. And you're going to be too lustful. Yeah. <laughs> Eating delicious things makes you think about sex. Yep. Therefore, no nice things for you during Lent. So says Augustine. So says Augustine. I mean, Augustine probably wouldn't want you to think about sex ever, but... No, he doesn't. He he was the guy who said that the ideal marriage is like a brother and sister. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Today, it goes beyond fish. There are some other odd rules about what you're allowed to eat and not eat, uh, and have it count as meat. In the 17th century, the Bishop of Quebec declared that beavers count as fish. I know this story because our friends have told us this story so many times. (laughs) Uh, Because, specifically, he said, they're skilled swimmers. Great. I don't know if this is in here and if I'm ruining your bit, but I just listened to a podcast earlier this week that talked about why alligator is considered a fish for the purposes of Lent. Yep, that's one of the ones that is on there. Yep. Um, Louisiana has feelings about alligator, and therefore you can eat alligator during Lent. That is one. Um, another one in the U.S. is muskrat. Okay. It counts as fish. I couldn't even tell you what a muskrat looks like. I... Let alone why I would want to eat one. I know they're, they're semi-aquatic mammals. Great. <laughs> So things that could be related to water. Yeah. And then in Venezuela, you can eat capybara. Okay. Which are giant rats. I thought they were giant guinea pigs. Uh, Whatever. They're giant rodents. (laughs) Giant rodents. In Nicaragua, you can eat iguana. All right. According to Dolly Jorgensen, uh, she's an environmental historian in Sweden, the medieval theological debate about foods that were forbidden during Lent didn't distinguish between mammals and fish. It was between land creatures and sea creatures. Okay. So that's really what people are getting this from, is these are water animals. We're allowed to eat water animals. (laughs) Yes. And you can decide what makes a water animal. (laughs) You get special rules from, like, the bishop level. Yeah. You can't just, as your own person, decide, this thing is in the water, I'm going to eat it. So you can't, like, chase a cow into a lake and then eat it. No, but I'd love to see someone try. (laughs) (laughs) Cows get mean. (laughs) Brian knows things about cows. Uh, That's excluding foods. Things that that we're not eating. But you also can't eat just as much as you want of the foods that are on the okay list. Okay. I didn't realize there was a portion control part of this exercise. Oh, yeah. Originally, you were only supposed to eat one small meal a day, ideally around 3 p.m., Okay, why 3 p.m.? I don't know. Because it's conveniently located? You're not supposed to do it in the morning. I couldn't find any reasoning behind that. The earliest that was acceptable was like noon. Okay. This one meal a day raised problems for people who were doing manual labor. Yeah. Um, So eventually the rules were relaxed to include a second smaller meal to help you get through the day doing all your hard work. That makes sense. Yeah. And is also probably more healthy. Probably. This rule came about in about the 9th century. All right. Allowing the second meal. That's good of them. Today, the official rules of the Catholic Church are that people from ages 18 to 59 
are allowed one meal and two smaller meals that when added together are still less than the main meal. Okay, so you get one meal and two snacks. Basically. So it's barely fasting. Yeah. (laughs) Also, even with this easy version of fasting, Roman Catholics don't fast for all of Lent. Yeah. They're only required to fast on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. Okay. Those are the mandatory fast days. Yeah. And this has changed um, in the mid-20th century. One of my sources said it was around World War II, but it didn't explain if the two are related. Okay. So I don't know. It could have had something to do with rationing. They changed up the practices. I don't know. And so in addition to the fasting on those two days, you're not supposed to eat meat on Fridays during Lent. And that's for all people who are older than 14. Okay. So So that's where fish on Fridays comes in. Yeah. Fun fact about abstaining from animal products through all of Lent. That's actually how we got Easter eggs. Oh, yeah. Because people were celebrating like, oh, we're allowed to eat eggs again. Cool. That's brilliant. (laughs) So that makes more sense than, you know, a bunny that lays eggs. It's true. (laughs) And then at some point, some brilliant human decided to fill them full of chocolate and whatever else is in a Cadbury cream egg. Mm -hmm. And the rest was history. I don't want to know what's in a Cadbury cream egg, but I'm going to eat them all the time. Oh, yeah. I got to buy some of those. (laughs) It's that time of year. Oh, yeah. So as the requirements for official fasting, these very strict rules decreased, there became more of an emphasis on just giving something up. So you decide your own form of austerity during Lent. That makes sense. And now you get to focus on what is important to you to work on, you know, living without. Exactly. Developing a different relationship with. Yeah. You're focusing more inward spiritually, preparation, living a more simple life, getting ready for Easter. But, you know, not everyone gives things up for Lent. And this can actually go back to King Henry VIII and Martin Luther. Oh, yeah. When Henry broke with the Catholic Church, eating fish was seen as a pro-Catholic political statement. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Anglicans made a point specifically to eat meat on Fridays. That's so shady. (laughs) I love it. Very petty. Yeah. The English... Reformation is very petty. Oh my goodness. Yeah, because it actually, outside of Lent, for a long time, Catholics would just not eat meat on Fridays throughout the whole year. Mm-hmm. And then that just saved more for the Anglicans. Yeah, and the Anglicans were just eating meat everywhere. Luther, on the other hand, he just thought that fasting should be up to the individual instead of mandated by the church. Cool. And... Between the two of these guys, it hurt England's fishing industry so much that in 1547, Henry's son, Edward VI, uh, tried to reinstate the fast to improve the fishing economy. Oh my goodness. (laughs) They couldn't just decide they liked fish? I don't know. They... I guess pettiness knows no bounds. It worked, though. A bunch of Anglicans were like, all right, we'll eat fish again. (laughs) True. Didn't work so much on the Lutherans. Uh, or they the still other don't. Protestants. They still don't do the fish on Fridays thing. They do not. So today, do the Episcopalians? Hmm, what was that? Do the Episcopalians? Yeah. Usually, when I'm talking about Anglicans, I'm including Episcopalians. Yeah, I just wasn't sure where we settled in. Like today, you guys go back to the fast. Yeah, the Book of Common Prayer, which is like the Anglican Communion's thing, that um, is it says to fast. Okay. During Lent, I don't know that it goes into nearly as much detail as the Catholics. I am unsurprised. (laughs) 
But yeah, so today, Catholics, Orthodox Christians, and Anglicans usually are the ones that are going to fast or give something up. Cool. Lutherans, more often, when they are doing Lent, they're going to focus on doing something extra instead of giving something up. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, like, I like that. Finding a more, like, more time for prayer or more time for, like, some kind of service or something. That's uh, nice. Yeah. Usually that's the stance that other Protestant groups will take during Lent. Some give things up, but not nearly as much as Catholics. Cool. A lot of Protestants or Evangelicals just, like, won't really do either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And cool. And that's Lent with a focus mostly on Lenten fasting. I love it. Well, let's take a break, and then we'll come back for some fun. Sounds good. And we're back. And now it is time for the Patronage Pop Quiz, where I tell Shannon about a saint, and she has to guess what they're the patron of. I can't wait! This time, we have St. Dominic of Silos. Cool. I know nothing. I don't even know where Silos is. I'm sure I'm pronouncing it wrong. It's Spanish. Oh, great. Dominic was born in around the year 1000 in Spain to a peasant family. Okay. He worked as a shepherd during his childhood, and then he became a Benedictine monk. He was eventually promoted to prior of the monastery, which is like a high up position in the monastery. Good for him. While in this role, he was ordered by King Garcia III of Navarre to give up the monastery's lands. He refused and was driven out along with two other monks. Okay. So not all the monks were driven out, just him and his associates. Yeah, I don't know. I guess the other monks were just like, okay, you can have the land. All right. He kept the ones who were willing to go with his will. Yeah, the rabble-rousers were driven out. Fair. They sought the protection of King Ferdinand of Old Castile and found a new home in San Sebastian Monastery. And there he was appointed abbot. When he took this position, the monastery was in pretty rough shape, physically, financially, and spiritually. It only had six monks total. Oh, wow. Small. Yeah. Very run down. Mm-hmm. But through hard work, he was able to turn it around. The house was soon a spiritual center that was noted for book design, printed art, its gold and silver work, and charity to the local poor. He was also able to raise money from wealthy patrons to get ransom for Christians who had been kidnapped by the Moors. There you go. Um, yeah. Doing lots of good work. Yeah. And the monastery he helped uh, rebuild, it was rebuilt in the Romanesque style, and it's still standing and is considered an architectural treasure. And St. Dominic died of natural causes at the age of 73. Many miracles were attributed to him after his death, especially ones related to pregnancy and healing. Dominic's abital staff was actually used to bless Spanish queens for a long time after, and it was kept by their beds when they were in labor. Wow. Blessed Joan de Guzman prayed at his shrine to conceive the child who she would name Dominic after him. Okay. And this boy grew up to be St. Dominic de Guzman, former saint of the week. There you go. It all comes back. Yeah. I think he was the one whose mom had the dream about the dog with the torch. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm there. Yep, that's I know the where guy. we are. The guy with the dog dreams. <laughs> yeah. So, Shannon, what is this Dominic the saint of? Is he the patron saint of pregnant women? He is! I did it! <laughs> that was a straight up the middle. <laughs> it's true. 
You know, there were plenty of other wackier things that came up that I thought about guessing, but I realized sometimes the simplest answer is the right one. Oh, and if you had guessed other things, you probably would not have gotten them right, because he's got some other weird ones, but I don't know where they came from. Okay, but I want to hear them. So Dominic is also the patron against hydrophobia, against insects, against mad dogs, against rabies, for captives, uh, for pregnant women, for prisoners, and for shepherds. Interesting. So the end of that list makes sense. Yes. (laughs) Well, that's just delightful. What a good story. Yeah, he's fun. Such a good one. (laughs) Well, thank you all so much for listening to the show. If you are enjoying the show, tell a friend about the show. Go on whatever app you are using to listen to this podcast. Write a rating. Write a review. It's a great way to make sure other people know about the show and can find us. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much to Adam Griffin for his music. You can check out his website, alteringgravity.wordpress.com, because he's having another live show in Chicago this spring. And it would be great to see some fans of the show out there supporting him. Thank you so much to David Griffin for editing this episode and for our logo. Also, thank you, David, for going to a whole bunch of Catholic churches in Spain with me back in the day when I knew even less than I know now (laughs) thanks to this show. Brian, do you have other special thanks? I do. We got a letter this past week that I wanted to share from my cousin, Laura. Oh yeah, the pictures are so cute. Yeah, she she sent us some pictures of her son's uh, baptism. It's been a bit now since that he's much bigger. And she wanted to tell us that at her church, which is a Roman Catholic church, they do baptism by full immersion instead of sprinkling. And that was different than what I said on the show because typically in Roman churches, they'll just pour water over the top of the baby's head. They dunked Hunter. Oh my god. There was also a good bit in there about giant purple robes that people wear while they're getting baptized in her church, which I was a big fan of. Yeah, the the adults who get baptized at Laura's church wear big purple robes because they also get fully dunked and can't be wearing their nice church clothes. That's appropriate. We also got an email from our friend Aaron parsing the difference between manna that we talked about in an episode and other manna. And I need to take a second and read that one slower before I'm ready to tell it to all of you guys on the podcast. But thank you for that email. We did get it. And on that, amen. Amen. Go in peace to like and share the pod. Mm -hmm.